You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Can we uh, give Brother Micah a hand tonight? did a great job playing the piano. Good job, bud. That is uh, Micah's first, uh, I think, time accompanying our worship and did a great job. He, he, he spent the night last night at our house with my boys, and uh, he said two things. One, I could not look at him for more than three seconds while he was playing, so, I, Mike, I don't think I did that. And then secondly, he said he knew he was going to make mistakes. I didn't hear any, for the record, okay? But uh, appreciate our young people and all that they're doing. Many of you have shared how encouraging that is to you. Isn't it good to be a part of a church where we see the next generation leaning in and not and stepping up and many that work with them? Uh, I hope that you appreciate that, their investments, and uh, you parents as well that uh, feel like sometimes it's a battle that you're losing or not gaining as much ground as you wish. Um, just keep at it and uh, encourage to see what God's doing in our young people. Galatians chapter 4 tonight, let's look, if you will, verse 21 through the end of the chapter. So we're looking at uh, plus nothing, looking at uh, God's grace and the gospel through um, this study in Galatians and uh, adding nothing, subtracting nothing from the grace of God in our theology practically. And want to continue that tonight. Just a couple words of note. One, if you would pray for uh, Heidi and I, uh, Lord willing, we'll be out of town this next weekend. Our last Inspire uh, event for the year will be in Pekin, Pekin, P-E-K-I-N, Illinois. This coming weekend, ministering to a church there. So, if you pray with us about that, appreciate all of you who pray for us as we travel now and then. And then, secondly, we are not starting the Amen Project tomorrow. So, I threw a, I kind of threw us off with that. Some of my comments last Sunday. We're starting a week from tomorrow. So, if you pray with us about that, and some of you said, "Oh, the Christmas decorations look nice." At least that'll keep us focused on what's below the ceiling. And uh, so we will try to do that for the next little bit. Some of you count lights. I'm telling you, if you get distracted, as soon as the ceiling gets opened up, uh, you will be distracted. So you're going to have to work at that the next few weeks. Here's we're in demo mode and uh, also rebuilding. But again, as I mentioned this morning, if you're able to help next week, if you just let us know, hey, this day I've got some free time and, and here's the date and the time. If you could just let me know that. We're trying to put together teams and collaborating on that. Some of you that have offered to bring food, I'll be probably reaching out to you this week as well if we need help with a bit of food or meals for those working, but to pray if you would for us on that. All right, Galatians chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 21. One of my favorite sections of the book of Galatians is the second half of this chapter. Paul says this in verse 21, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law... He then asked this question, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, but he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. So that's a key phrase in this last section. So lots of allegorical or pictorial language here in this section, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, verse 26, which is, of, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. 
For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that beareth uh, that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than, he, uh, than she which hath an husband. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuteth him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So tonight we want to look at this subject, and this is kind of a little bit of a maybe confusing or just feels like it's moving in several directions at once. We want to look at grace symbolized. This is fascinating, the allegory or the symbolism we find in the text. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day we've enjoyed together. Lord, we do Think of those that are at home or traveling, Lord, due to illness and family gatherings and other things. You would bring them back to us. Thank you for a great day you've blessed us with and the many, um, just your favor and your direction. We give you glory for that. We pray that you would bless now our time as we study your word. Help us, Lord, to understand not only it in a way that's theologically accurate, but also, Lord, as practically um, everything that you want it to be and that we would leave free in your grace, and also faithful to steward in a way that pleases you. Bless this study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but a few months ago, I asked Pastor Nathan to uh, oversee restriping our parking lot, especially the north parking lot. I'd gotten to where you couldn't see where to park and not, and we, we decided not to reseal our parking lot this year. And so we just kind of did a, a, we normally have it done professionally, and so I just said, do you think you could pull that off? And he got some help, and we borrowed some equipment. And one of the things he had to purchase were some stencils for, like, the senior parking and the uh, handicap parking and things like that. And so that was probably one of the biggest, was getting the line straight for his OCD boss. Um, and secondly, was getting those, finding one that he could use that was similar to the old pattern. So he was doing that. The other day, I, I saw this um, picture, um, and then I'll read the caption. But here, somebody was, they were dry. This is not in our parking lot, for the record, okay? Um, and this was what they saw in a parking spot, and this was a guy. This had to be a guy. He said, I, I went to the grocery store, and they now have a parking lot. Here was what he thought this was symbolizing. For fat guys who like to grill. <laughs> and he said, I, I just appreciate the, the consideration out there for guys like me who... Uh, enjoy grilling. We all know what that actually is for, right? That's not for fat guys who like to grill, okay? It's for mamas, expecting mamas with, with young ones. Um, sometimes as it relates to the, <laughs> to the grace of God, if we're not careful, we miss the rich texture of the grace of God, especially in the areas where God gives us illustrations of it. Aren't you thankful for that? That God gives us theological truth, but then he illustrates it? And one of the things that I think often we do with the grace of God is we make it to, uh, it's about a, just one issue with us, or it's about one principle with us, instead of seeing the fully developed, kind of in real time and space, different ways that God pictures or portrays His grace. Um, and so we're going to look at tonight a few areas where God gives to us some symbols or allegorical representations of His grace and the law that help us make wiser choices uh, as we steward what God has given us through Jesus Christ. And we've all heard the expression, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Um, I took some pictures this weekend of, of my son, Ian, as he's now 17, and 
the family gatherings and with his friends and with some of his cousins and just those pictures. He'll, it's a moment that we'll never get back. Tomorrow he'll start you know, full, full-throated into his 17th year, and things are always changing, and those pictures each mean so much to us as we view them. And the same is true with the grace of God. And I would say to you tonight, often our understanding or appreciation of God's truths reveal to us what could never be reached without symbolism and illustrations. Just like a picture is worth a thousand words, the symbols of God's grace often convey to us truths that we can't even fully put just into words. Does that make sense? And I'm thankful that God gives us that, that it's not just here's the theological academic aspects of my grace, but let's look at what this is in a fleshed out manner. And so God gives us that here in this text through a man who knew the Old Testament well, which is the Apostle Paul. Now, the key verse that sets all this up is verse 21. And I would encourage you to go back to that where Paul says this, tell me ye that desire to be under the law. So he's talking to those who are trying to sway and to mislead um, the Galatians in, in legalistic directions. Notice, um, to, uh, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? And what Paul is going to do masterfully is show how the very law that they so tout and claim to be identified with actually contradicts their position. Um, just so you understand the law, the word law did not just refer to um, the 613 commands or the, you know, the Ten Commandments as we would refer to them. The law also often was used to refer to the whole Old Testament. Um, listen to the law and the prophets, and so much of the Old Testament falls under that category. And so Paul here goes back to these Old Testament examples to show these Galatians that their position actually is undermined by the very law Um, that they so were fond of. And so Paul here goes back to the story of Hagar and Sarah. Do you remember the story? Um, Sarah, who is up in years, her handmaiden. And he uses this story to confront the false teachers who had told the Galatians something to this effect. You're not really the sons and the daughters of Abraham unless you place yourself under the law of Moses. And what's amazing, and I love this about Paul, and I love people who argue this way, they actually use the very thing one is trying to use to defend, he uses to, to confront them with. He doesn't start with what he believes and what he's touting. He starts with what they're adhering to, and he turns it on its head in a way that actually is faithful to uh, God's grace. And so Paul's basic point is this. The moment you believed in Christ, you are the children of Abraham. Heirs of all the promises of God. And the moment you start thinking that you have to obey the whole law, you are no longer the children of Abraham. You're no longer the children of God. So it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. It's something we receive by grace through faith alone. So the question tonight is this. In a day of misconstrued or underappreciated symbols in the word, how do we properly perceive their full significance through the lens of God's grace? Let's talk about tonight three symbolic truths that we get through the text that help us understand the grace of God better. Number one, let's talk for a few minutes about the symbolism of motherhood that's referenced here in the first few verses of our text to help us understand and appreciate God's grace more. Um, Any of you have friends who run on Thanksgiving like they do like a 5K or something? Um, one of my friends was joking about his greatest fear when he was dating is that he would marry into a family who runs a 5K on Thanksgiving, when that's like 
his nightmare way to start a Thanksgiving. We just stuff our faces and lay around and watch football or whatever your agenda is growing up. You know that our associations in family often define us, and that is true as well as it relates to the grace of God. And so Paul here uses this illustration of Hagar versus Sarah to show us what the grace of God should be and not be. So let's talk about that quickly. Number one, let's see the symbolism of Hagar, H-A-G-A-R. Um, here it spells it uh, Agar, A-G-A-R, but this would be Hagar of uh, the Old Testament. See the symbolism of Hagar. And let's go back to verse 20, <laughs> 22. He says this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. Notice this next phrase, the one by a bondmaid. So we see that Sarah is the bond woman. She is the one who is in bondage. She's the one who is in servanthood. Servanthood. She is the one who is placed under another. And notice now what happens as a result of her position as a bond woman. Go down to verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. And so one of the key things that Paul is saying here is that Ishmael, we'll talk about the son more in just a moment, but the son of Hagar was born of the flesh. He was born in a natural way. He was born uh, in the course of nature. It required no miracle. It required no promise of God. It just happened. It was of the flesh. What's the significance of that to us as those pursuing the grace of God? Well, think about God promising that the son of promise would come through not just a barren woman, but an old woman, an elderly woman. It was going to take an absolute miracle for a son to come through that womb, right? And here's what happened with Abraham, as we all are prone to do with the grace of God. We start with the grace of God, and we hear all of his promises but then we begin to consider that's not possible. I have to intervene. I have to do something of my own to make this promise happen. God gives us his grace, and then we figure out how we can deliver on what that grace promises, moving us away from the liberty and into the bondage that comes as a result. Abraham here, he was well within his legal rights, though God had condemned multiple, being married to multiple partners or multiple spouses. Legally, he was within bounds to marry this woman or have relations with this woman. But Abraham decided not to wait on God's supernatural actions to get a son, right? Instead, he got ahead of himself. He got out in front of his skis, as my dad would always say. Uh, growing up skiing, he got ahead of himself. He pushed the agenda. He tried to do his own thing to deliver what only the grace of God could rightly deliver. Instead, he decided to get his son through human attainment, through what he was capable of and what Hagar was capable of. And so by having marital relations with Hagar, Abraham was choosing to rely upon his own capabilities. He was trying to work out what God had promised to him instead of trusting and waiting upon the Lord. Now, a key point this evening, a view of grace that focuses upon only what is humanly possible will always take us in a direction that is theologically and practically wrong. Like if you only think about what God's grace can and should do in your life only by what is humanly possible, you're going to do just what Abraham did. You're going to start to justify things and to do things to try to interject yourself into an area that only rightfully is God's responsibility. And I see Christians doing it over and over, starting with me. 
We hear about God's grace, and we hear about what it gives to us and what it ensures for us, but then we start to go forward in our own strength, and we move in the direction we see this family digressing. All right, go to verse 22, back there to the end of the verse, and let's talk about a second mother that begins to set the table for our understanding of God's grace through these symbols. Verse 22, again, notice one is by a bondmaid. Notice, secondly, the other, Isaac, by a free woman. Number two, see the symbolism of Sarah. So Hagar symbolizes human effort, um, focusing only what is humanly possible and therefore limiting the grace of God. We see that Sarah is a picture of or a symbol of the free woman, the one who is liberated by the grace of God. Uh, Go back to Genesis, and I would encourage you to hold your place here. We're going to bounce back and forth a couple times tonight. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, and look specifically, if you will, at verse 15. Genesis 17 and verse 15. And here we have the, this is in the moment. This is what Paul is referring to in Galatians chapter 4, is this dialogue between God and Abraham, specifically as it relates to the free woman, to Sarah, or to Sarai, as she was called prior uh, to this promise being given. Verse 15 of Genesis 17. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt call her name, shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Notice the emphasis repeatedly of her. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed. And said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is ninety-year-old uh, bear? And notice verse 18. Here's where Abraham is wrestling with. Is, and Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael, he's already living, might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And so you see Abraham having to wrestle with God's promise, and yet the promise had to come through Sarah, this free way, this liberating way versus this works-based way. And so Abraham assumed his descendants would come through Ishmael. God corrects it in Genesis 17. All right, then go back to Galatians chapter 23, or chapter 4, and look if you will, verse 23. So you have the bondmaid and the free woman. Notice the bondwoman. He who is born of her is born, what? After the flesh. The end of verse 23 is key, but he of the free woman was by promise. Isaac, on the other hand, was born not as a result of fleshly effort or conniving or manipulation, but as a result of God fulfilling his promise. Abraham and Sarah were well beyond the age of childbearing, but God still fulfilled his promise and bringing life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And you can read about that later on in the story that we begin with. Um, we don't have time to read it, but in Genesis 21, I would encourage you to read on your own time, verses 1 through 3. So a couple chapters after where we just were, Genesis 21, 1 to 3. And it keeps saying over and over, Isaac is born of Sarah, of Sarah, of Sarah. I think in those three verses, God indirectly at least, or directly says, this child came from this elderly woman, Uh, six or seven times, just emphasizing, I said what I said, and I fulfilled what I said through this uh, this free woman uh, whose name is Sarah. So Paul here in verse 23 applies this 
to our relationship with God's grace. Just as Sarah was barren and had to wait for many years for her son, we too often must wait before God's promises are fulfilled. One of the things I observe in those who are legalistic, and we all have tendencies in this room uh, that probably lean this direction, maybe more than we're aware of tonight. But listen to me, any interaction with God's grace that produces impatience in us is not of God. Uh, One of the things I notice with legalistic tendencies is they're trying to manipulate or manufacture either spiritual maturity in others or spiritual maturity in themselves that's very surfacey and very it's very artificial things that god does tend to take time you do realize that right his grace is always moving but often moving at a much slower pace than we would prefer Um, and so we must rest in him and wait upon him and rely upon him as we see abraham having to learn in his own family If we become impatient, it will cause us to compromise or hinder all that God will deliver on in His perfect time and in His perfect way. Um, I was thinking about this as it relates to our church. I have dreams about this church, our deacons. We just had a meeting tonight. One of them asked me, where do you see us in five years? And and we could have spent some hours on that. I try not to scare them too much with my responses to that. But I I have things I'd love to see God do here. I'd love to see God do out of here. That's probably what really would scare you tonight. It's not just what God, I think, probably eventually wants to do here, but out of here, um, if, if that's his will or not. But I was thinking about this as it relates to pace. Do you know that the healthiest churches right now in our world are the ones that lean into God's pace of how he works and leads? And don't push and don't drag their feet. They just stay in sync with God no matter how slowly or methodically he works. And I heard this the other day. A friend of mine I respect said this, healthy churches don't typically grow by leaps and bounds through splashy initiatives and clever strategies. They grow like trees, slow, I like these words, steady, strong, with small but certain rings to show for each passing year a faithful collective ministry. Healthy things that grow by the grace of God tend to grow very incrementally. Do we have the patience to wait on God instead of trying to preempt it in our flesh, even sanctified flesh, as we would say, instead of just letting God do his work in his perfect timing? Um, And this is a hard truth, but I'm going to give it to you tonight because God convicted me on it as well. Do you know that legalism is just as carnal and unfaithful to God as license? You understand what I mean by that? License would be, well, I have the grace of God. I can do whatever I want. That, that's, that's being unfaithful, right, to the God of all grace. Do you know that legalism is just as unfaithful? And here's the blunt truth tonight. Those who take God's grace and go with license, they are prostituting the grace of God. Can we say that directly tonight? Those that say, I can do whatever I want with the grace of God, you are prostituting the grace of God. That's the blunt truth. Here's the equal truth that hurts as I say it tonight. To take the grace of God and go in a legalistic direction is spiritual polygamy. We're trying to be married to God and yet have Hagar too. And make it happen, make it happen, make it happen. Where is that trust in not just God's will, but also in his timing? And so according to ancient laws and customs of this day, the status of the mother affected the status of the son. We see that referenced here. Who is the mom? That leads to not just a bond woman, but also a young man born of that woman who equally has that status. And so our status before God is based upon which mother, if you will, 
we're trusting in. If, if you're trusting in works, you're in bondage tonight. No matter how religious those works are, you're still in bondage. And if you're trusting in the grace of God, then you are free. You are free indeed. And so the grace of God frees us to be of Sarah, to be of the free woman. All right, number two, go back to our text, if you will, to verse number 24. And we see a second symbol used here as reference beginning in verse 24. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. The one, notice this, from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. Number two, symbolized in geography. So he talks about these mothers. Now he talks about geographical locations. Um, I don't know if you track with this. I refer to this now and then. I'm, I have a dry sense of humor, so I'm sorry if these don't crack you up. But are you familiar with what's called Babylon B? It's like a, it's basically a satire. They have these so-called news stories that are just, really, it's truth, just clouded in some joke. But here was the heading, all right? This is not actually a real headline, but here was the heading. Miracle. Man successfully drives across town safely, even though his wife was not there to provide helpful driving tips. He still got across town, okay, safely from point A to point B. Do you know that a lot of our theology is more geographically oriented than we realize? Where we're from, who we're associated with, our origin story, and often that shapes our view of God's grace in a way that hinders it being from everything that it should be. You're in Galatians 4. Go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. And Paul references this earlier in his letter. Look at verse 6, this geographical component. He says back at the very beginning of his letter, Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are so soon, what? Removed from him that has called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So our movement away from God's grace often geographically is what leads us away from the grace of God. And so not only who we're married to, but where we set up our spiritual household largely shapes our view of God's grace. Um, And so this geographical illustration is used. All right, let's talk about two things as it relates to that. Number one, see the symbolism of present Jerusalem. All right, so jot that down if you will. See the uh, the symbolism of present Jerusalem. And he talks about that Uh, specifically in verse 25 that we'll get to in just a moment, but this symbolism of present Jerusalem. Now, when we read the story of Hagar and Sarah, I would just be careful to say that Hagar in and of herself was not um, a villain. In fact, I think she was mistreated. I think she was taken advantage of. I think we could even maybe say she was uh, abused in the story. You have Abraham and Sarah and their manipulation and their conniving. It was actually Sarah's idea to begin with, and her frustration, and Abraham conceded and and went along with uh, her manipulation of the situation to try to achieve what God had promised on their own. You have Sarah, who obviously um, was a collaborator with Abraham, uh, one who likely did not believe the promise of God as it related to the promised child. Um, And so we're not Abraham is not calling into question the character of Hagar and also defending the character of Sarah in the story. But the key word or phrase is found in verse 24, which things are an allegory. Um, And he's saying this story fleshes out uh, law versus grace, legalism versus liberty. And, And so we see Paul here masterfully using this story 
um, to illustrate for us the contrast between grace and works. Now, in verse 24, you notice that he talks about these two covenants. The one from a place called Mount Sinai, which gendereth or which births, which produces as offspring bondage, which is Agar. And so this Mosaic covenant that had its origins at Mount Sinai, this legal covenant um, that was for slaves, uh, Hagar here is the one who brings forth um, this law. And so we see the symbolism uh, of where we live today and where Jerusalem is today. In fact, it's interesting, Hagar, that's mentioned there, uh, in Arabic means rock. Um, And so we see the connection between Hagar and Mount Sinai, the rock. These two things are associated with one another. All right, now let's get to verse 25 as it relates to present Jerusalem. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Um, the words answer it to means to belong to or correspond to. And so he's connecting present Jerusalem to Agar and to Arabia. He's taking Jerusalem and Arabia is taking that which is outside of Jerusalem and inside of Jerusalem and connecting them to one another. Isn't that interesting? Because the Jews think Jerusalem is sacred, that it's the place to be associated with. Judaism in Christ's day and in Paul's day, and yet Paul says here, you're just, you're just like everybody else around you. You're depending on anything and everything except the grace of God. It is an apostate uh, religion that produces bondage in those who follow it, the children that are referenced at the end of the verse. Can you imagine the Judaizers hearing this? Paul taking Jerusalem and saying, you're just part of Arabia. You're just part of bondage. You're just another version or iteration of, of man-made religion. And so Paul here confronts it with the symbolism of present Jerusalem. Um, Ishmael is traditionally the father of the Arab people, as most of us know. Paul here refers to Mount Sinai in Arabia. These are the law reliers relying upon Mount Sinai and the laws that came from it. And he calls them people of Arabia, people outside of God in his favor. Um, And so Paul here confronts them through this illustration of this location. Um, Just a thought here, and we'll move to verse 26. Any view of grace that is shaped or validated primarily by where we come from or don't come from on this present planet is going to go the wrong direction with God's grace. I'm from here, and this is me, and I'm not them, and and comparing ourselves and looking down on others will never lead us in the direction of God's grace. All right, verse 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is mother of us all. Number two, see the symbolism of heavenly Jerusalem. So he talks about present Jerusalem. Number two, he talks about heavenly Jerusalem. And so the word but that begins verse 26 is basically saying in contrast to present Jerusalem, let's talk now about a different Jerusalem, which is the capital city of God, his heavenly Jerusalem, the mother of all believers, both Jew and Gentile. Verse 27, for it is written, rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than he, uh, than she which hath an husband. And so Paul here quotes from Isaiah 54 and verse 1, predicts that the children of, heaven, of the heavenly city will be more numerous than the children of the earthly city. One of the things I was thinking about as it relates to this, um, 
was when I was in Israel in January, it was right after COVID. And I remember we walked into the old city and it's, it's, it's not that big of a city. You have different quadrants uh, of the Orthodox section and the Jewish section, all these divisions, but there's this massive market. And, uh, and, and we were one of the first tourists to be there in several months. And it was just all these like hyper aggressive shopkeepers trying to sell us stuff, you know, all this stuff that said made in China, but they were trying to convince us was just carved over the holler, you know, and it's out of real olive wood tree, you know, olive wood and all these things. But they just swarmed us because the city was basically empty. You know what Paul's saying here? That the city that we're preparing to go to, that we only get into by the grace of God, that who's going to be there will far outweigh in significance and in population than anything that man can contrive and put together. Isn't that amazing to think about? The grace of God. Uh, and so the residents in this heavenly city will far outnumber, both in significance and numerically, all that quote-unquote come to God through man-made religion. And so Paul here takes this story that Isaiah uses back in chapter 54 and gives it this, this application. Uh, these Galatians that are being beat up by these legalists for not measuring up. Um, they are being told they're too polluted, they're too flawed, they're too limited and frail. Paul turns the tables and comforts the Galatians through the example of the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong, the people from good families, the folks with good records can be spiritually fruitful and enjoy the love and joy of God uh, and transform the lives of others. But if the gospel is true, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. You may be a spiritual and moral outcast, as marginal as the single barren woman described in the text. It doesn't matter. You can bear fruit. You can have relationship with God through the grace of God. Aren't you thankful for that? Because we all are the outsiders, right? But the grace of God makes us to belong. It makes us a part of what God is doing. Don't let the legalist ostracize you from the grace that God so freely offers. Through Sarah's family would come another unlikely son, right? Let's zoom out for a moment. Who's that unlikely son? The son of whom? A virgin. So God takes a barren woman, and we're going to study about Elizabeth and some of these stories um, in Luke's accounts uh, this Christmas, but God gives another son through an unlikely birth canal, through an unlikely womb, and that is the Virgin Mary, the one who ultimately delivers to us the grace of God, not because of something we did or something Mary did or the people of her day did, but because God is a God of grace. So may we be willing to trust this God who's leading us to the heavenly Jerusalem. A pastor that I know who just retired, and I respect him greatly. He's a good man, and he pastored out in Kansas for a while. And he's been traveling. He's just pastored for a number of years. Now he's traveling a bit more than he used to. And he was talking about this idea of campiness. Have you ever heard? Well, they're not like us. They're not from our circles. And, and I, I catch a lot of that vibe as I'm beginning to do a bit of travel myself and just this, this divisiveness over pettiness. And he said this, this is so wise. He said, the more you're afforded the opportunity to travel outside your circle or camp or whatever term you choose to use, the more you discover that your circle and camp is such a small, small remnant of the army God's got doing his work. And I just want to challenge you tonight directly. You don't have a corner on the grace of God, and neither do I. Nobody's got to jump through any of my hoops or yours to have access to the grace of God. 
What standards are you holding people to that God's not holding them to? What pace are you moving at that God's never moving at? We have to guard against that uh, to open up our own hearts and lives and that of others to this grace that's so uh, controversial and radical from man's perspective that God freely offers to us. No matter the geographical, economic, or theological background, any person from any place can experience relationship and fellowship with God where he is. Is that the feel of your grace? Is that the message and vibe your version of grace is giving off? Are you letting this pettiness, this legalism creep in that hinders what God is confronting in Galatians? All right, number three. So symbolism first in motherhood through Sarah and Hagar. Number two, symbolism in geography. And lastly, number three, symbolism in sonship. And we see these two boys being referenced and the symbolism they give to us. Um, Sonship. Uh, I don't know if any of you have adult children who are dating. Um, Some of you were talking about that. Somebody in your family's new girlfriend or whatever the case may be. Somebody was joking about holiday pictures. Be careful with those people when you do your family photos. Do you know where this is going? Some of you maybe saw this. Somebody was talking about um, putting them on the edge of the picture. So you can crop them out when the relationship goes down in flames, but you want to keep the family photo that you took that was so great, you just cut them out. So just, that's just free, okay? For those of you who head into that phase as we're about to do so probably, just keep them toward the edge. Hey, would you mind standing over here? And then you just snip them out literally or digitally. And hey, there's our family photo. What's that arm sticking out across the shoulder of my daughter? I don't know. Let's just move on, you know? Maybe you can blur that out. Symbolism and sonship. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't, with his grace, bring us in, but then keep us where he can crop us out, that there's a, a, a temporary status or, or a contingent status that we have with God. He gives to us sonship. We're a part of the family. Um, and if we get off on grace, it's often because we view being a child of God as either all about carnal play or religious chores. And that somehow we have to earn it, or we can do whatever we want with it when there is a third option, which is not carnal play or religious chores. It is the grace of God. Um, The scriptures uses the son of in a different way than we often do. Like we would say, for example, me, I'm the son of Max Snow. That's my dad's name. In scripture, they would use son of to, to describe a person. For example, James and John, what are they called? The sons of what? Thunder, right? Benergenes. Uh, Christ called them the sons of thunder. Um, You have Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. He's called the son of what? Consolation. So son of was not just um, who your daddy is, but it was who you are. What defines you? What are you known for? And so the grace of God is meant to be the source of our identity. And so he's going to use these two sons to help us live in light of and identify more fully and consistently with the grace of God. If I ask you tonight, what makes you who you are? Is it, I'm a son or daughter of God by the grace of God alone, that's who I am? Or is it, I don't do this and I always do this and I'm always here and I'm never here. I dress a lot. I mean, we go through all kinds of things that we derive so much of our identity from that undercuts the grace of God, that enables us to be sons of God. He's given us that power He's given us that privilege. All right, so notice two aspects, opposite sides of the same coin as it relates to the symbolism of sonship. Number one, see the symbolism of Ishmael. 
Go back to verse 29. Ishmael. Verse 29 says this, but as he but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And we see if you go back to Genesis where Ishmael mocks Isaac, just as today those that are born of the flesh persecute and mock those that are born of the spirit. Um, the sufferings of the Lord, the Apostle Paul who's writing the words here, and uh, the unsaved yet highly religious men who persecuted them. Um, and so here God says that as Ishmael persecuted Isaac and mocked Isaac, we too, who follow the grace of God and are born of promise, we too will be mocked by those around us. And so we see this principle over and over, the enmity between the flesh and the spirit. Um, back in chapter 2 of Galatians in verse 3, um, if you go back there for just a moment, you notice that Paul comes back to Jerusalem. This would be present Jerusalem that he references in our text tonight. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Religion trying to conform or force them and, and to mock and marginalize them if they were unwilling to do so. And so it, it goes on today as well. Ishmael mocking Isaac. Uh, verse 30, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And so Galatians here refers to Scripture in verse 30. What says the Scripture? That's probably where we ought to start, right, with the grace of God? Like, who cares what you have to say about the grace of God? Who cares what I have to say? What saith the Scripture? And the Scripture says to cast out the bondwoman, cast out relying and resting on the law, and, and instead lean into the promises and the grace of God. And so that Paul here appeals to the Scriptures. And from it comes the verdict that law and grace cannot be mixed. It's impossible to inherit God's blessings on the basis of human merit uh, or favor. You can't have it both ways. So go ahead and clear the house, clean the house, uh, disassociate from that which is opposite of God's grace. So God commands Abraham to cast out Ishmael and Hagar, law and grace, faith and works, promise and commandment. None of these things, these two can live in the same household. So may we be willing to cast out uh, this legalism as well. Um, when you think of legalist, do you think of, if I gave you two terms, a person who is liberal and a person who is conservative, if I gave you those two terms, which would you put legalist under? We tend to put a license under their liberal, and we would say that a legalist is very tight and conservative and restricted in their view of things. I was reading the other day, an author said this. I think this is very helpful. It challenges our thinking. It's kind of counterintuitive. He said, those who make laws around God's laws may seem really conservative, but in fact, they're liberal. Going beyond Scripture, binding consciences, making their traditions as if they are equal with God's Word. Legalists always seem conservative. Listen to me. They're actually liberal. To add to the grace of God, even religious things, is a liberal perspective. We just read the end of Revelation. Don't add anything. <laughs> How dare we add anything, even under the guise or banner of religion, uh, to the grace of God. And so Paul says, disassociate from those who so freely add uh, to what God has clearly given to us, plus nothing kind of grace. 
So Paul here flatly states that the children of the slave, those seeking salvation through law obedience, will always persecute the children of the free woman. We have to get used to that, who live in the bounds of God's grace. Those enjoying salvation by grace alone. And and why is it? Why does a highly religious legal person want to persecute those of us who live in the freedom of God's grace? Because here it is, that's a humbling thing to do. There's nothing I can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing I can do to, to keep his grace. I'm free because of what God alone has done for me. And so it confronts human pride when we attempt to live in God's grace where others are unwilling to do so. And so may we lean into that persecution, take it as a compliment instead of a confrontation as we try to be faithful to God's grace. I don't think our greatest persecution comes from the, the, the enemies that we often list. If I said, who's the greatest enemies to the church of Jesus Christ? I don't think it's, I don't think it's the hedonist. I don't think it's the person that shakes their fist at God and at heaven itself. It's those under the guise of religion mix works and grace, or actually confront God's grace with a works-based salvation. It is the nominal church. It's the mainstream church that is the greatest enemy of our faith. So may we be willing to stand in the face of that pushback from Ishmael and those in our day who follow his thinking. So this word of application, we'll move to our last sub-point here. We must identify where we have Ishmael tendencies toward those who fully identify with grace plus nothing. We have to be willing to do that. We must also admit where we don't boldly, persistently disassociate from them, no matter how much they judge us and guilt trip us. That's a hard thing. I'll admit that this evening. Because we have folks regularly that come in and out of our church or I associate with a ministry. And man, they just can't handle that I'm not bothered about what they're bothered about. Or on the flip side, that I have some standards and convictions that they just feel they can cast off without any restraint or restrictions. Um, And so we can't let what others think shape us or distort us away from what God has clearly revealed about his grace and his will. All right, lastly, look back at verse 28. Now, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Number two, and lastly, see the symbolism of Isaac. So we have these two sons, Ishmael, who pictures the works-based, legalistic approach to merit and favor and fellowship with God. We have Isaac, who is the free son, the one who is born within the bounds and the blessing of God's promises. And in verse 28, you will notice that Paul compares the birth of Isaac to that of Christians. Just as Isaac experienced a supernatural birth and was a child by means of promise, so we as believers experience this supernatural birth John 3, Christ talks about that with Nicodemus, and we are recipients of the promise of salvation. We studied that back in Galatians 3, verse 9, verse 22, and verse 29. As children of promise, Christians are in a distinct category and should not live as children of bondage. One of the things I found that's helped me is those who try to control me promise me things. They may not say it that way. Hey, if, if you'll get in line with me, if you'll get in sync and in step with my convictions or my standards, then we can have fellowship. I'll have you maybe come preach for me or whatever the case may be, something of that nature. I'll, I'll meet you for coffee or lunch. I'll associate with you. And the only way I cannot bite that bait is to remember the promises of God that supersede those superficial promises that, that are not just temporal and manipulative in nature. And so remembering the promises of God. Why would we live in bondage when God has given us so many glorious, enduring 
promises by his grace alone. So he says here, we're children of the promise. We don't need to contrive. We don't need to manipulate things. God fulfilled his promises to us. All right, look lastly, verse 31. So then, brethren, here's the conclusion of the matter. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul here says, those who have trusted Christ as Savior have no connection with the law as a means of obtaining divine favor. They are children of the free woman, and they follow the social condition or status of their mother. We are free because we are born of grace alone. Isaac, as the son of promise, reminds us that our relationship with our Heavenly Father is not about our performance, but it's about God's promises. Isn't that good? Our status, our relationship with God is not based upon what we do or don't do. It's based upon God fulfills His promises. The one who knows who we are, who knows who we can be, all by His grace alone. Um, in our flesh, I've noticed this, in our flesh, our motivation for serving God or rejecting God, both of those motivations tend to be very close. So our motivation to serve God as well as our motivation to reject God. Because in both cases, we tend to maintain independence from God by denying that we are so sinful and that we need to be saved desperately by His grace alone. Instead, we try to earn our value, either by serving God or rejecting God. We don't want Him on His own terms. And so because of that, we live in bondage where we can instead be free and experience the blessings of God. Don't deny how desperately you need God's grace. Allow it to be the source of your identity. Allow it to be the source of your liberty. I think it's time, Christians, this would just be my encouragement to us tonight, that we live up to who we are as the sons of God versus what we do or don't do for God. When are we going to get over our performance mindset and letting others manipulate us with that? We either are what we are by the grace of God alone or we're not. Now, do we evidence who we are by what we do and don't do? Yes. But who are we? Let's focus more on that and less on what we do and don't do to derive our sense of identity. We are the sons of God. Where is your appreciation of being a son of God waning through legalistic tendencies and needs to be renewed through a fresh sense of God's grace. I would encourage you to write that down. Consider that. Where do you need to grow in your appreciation of being a son of God? Um, this is just bringing it to our church tonight. Have you ever wished, and I know I'm opening a can of worms when I ask this, but I'm, I'm willing to do it tonight because I think we need to. Do you think you ever wished that this church reflected more perfectly your personal preferences and standards? Is it just me? Like I tell, I, this is something I tell. If you joined our church in the last several years, probably several, several years, I regularly tell this to new people. I just said it last week again. This church is not, it's not exactly where I wish it was or I prefer it would be. And it's almost like, wait, you're the pastor. Um, do you know that's a common sensation we all experience? If this church fit you perfectly, it'd probably be too much about you. And if it if it fit me perfectly, it'd probably be too much about me. You know what happens when that happens? The grace of God gets, cloud, gets crowded out of this place. And I would submit to you a lot of the sweet spirit that we have in our church is because by God's grace alone, his grace is hopefully front and center. I'm not trying to manipulate you and control you. I don't feel that vibe from you as well. Because ultimately, 
there's liberty where the Spirit of God is, and there is the grace of God, and it alone should be the standard in our lives. And so the good spirit and the attitude in our spirit uh, in our church has to be maintained by that. I want to give you this last thought, and this applies in a lot of different areas, but I read this just the other day. Healthy churches prioritize what is doomed to fail without divine help. So if we can do it on our own, it's probably not where we're going to trend in a healthy direction. But if it takes the grace of God to get there and stay there and grow there, that's probably where we need to land and stay. And I'm telling you, there, there's much of who we are and who we should be that is impossible without the help of God, which in another way is saying the grace of God. We are as healthy as we are dependent and reliant and visionary based upon and built only on the grace of God. Healthy churches prioritize what is doomed to fail without divine help. All right, so this thought, and we'll pray. I see in our day a Christianity that is subtly infected with legalistic and licensed licensed issues with the grace of God that distorts it. And we think we're living in the grace of God, and we are nowhere close. So Paul here gives us these very radical, jarring symbols and illustrations to bring us back to a faithful adherence to the Word of God. And specifically, as Paul is confronting, the doctrine of legalism. Um, The need of the hour is for us to have uncompromising standards to proclaim the liberty that is in Christ. As a pastor, sometimes I worry when I say that. We're free in Christ that people are going to, oh no, where's this going? We should boldly say that. I'm free. I'm liberated. And do that with confidence and with consistency. There's no reason to apologize or add a bunch of caveats. Paul here clearly teaches we are born of the free woman. And so may we be willing to assert that and live that and use even these allegorical representations to flesh that out in our own hearts and lives as we stand for him. So here's the question, and we'll pray. Will you choose to live in grace plus nothing by appreciating the God-given liberating symbols of divine grace that we see in motherhood, that we see in geography, and that we see in sonship? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word.